Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to First Presbyterian Church of San Antonio this morning. Whether you're here with us in person or joining us online, we are so glad that you're here. It is so good to be back with you again this morning. I love to, to be in your presence and I know that you love to be together in fellowship on these Sunday mornings and so it's, it is wonderful to have you here today. You know, just in case things couldn't get any more strange, uh, last week's polar storm, and first of all, can you believe that we, we were last week digging out from under ice and snow? Is it a little bit humid and warm today to even remember that far back? If you remember that storm, one of the things that I wrote out to the congregation a bit prematurely was that we had not, we had not suffered any significant damage. As it turns out, we did have some leaking in our uh, fellowship hall, Westminster Hall, and so we did have to make some adjustments because if you walked by that room today, you see that they're doing some work on the floor in there. It's not major damage, but it is something that needed to be attended immediately. And so we are going to be gathering for both of our services, both our traditional service this morning in this uh, hour and then our contemporary service at the 11 o'clock hour in this room. So we're, we are in a constant state of adaptability these days. And I wanna thank you all for being here, for making those adaptations and for moving along with us as th things keep getting more and more interesting. Well, just, uh, just as we talk about Lent and as we talk about things becoming more and more interesting, we have a really interesting passage that we're going to study today. But let me start off by, by saying this. You know, if you have a big music fan in your life and you really want to make that person's day, tell them that you have backstage passes to meet their favorite rock star or singer after a concert. I mean, to the diehard music fan, the backstage pass is the holy grail of tickets. There's something special about being invited backstage to meet a celebrity or into a locker room or into a clubhouse to meet a great athlete. A backstage pass provides a special opportunity because it always allows a fan to meet his or her idol in person, up close, face to face, as he or she really is. And yet, when we get backstage, if you get backstage, without the lights, without the makeup, and without the amplifiers and the pyrotechnics, the person that you meet backstage, as wonderful as he or she might be, might seem, well, a little less, a little less impressive than the person that one sees on stage. But today we're going to read a story that shows us that the opposite was true with Jesus. Jesus gave Peter and James and John a backstage pass. But the Jesus that they saw backstage was not less, but rather more than they ever imagined Jesus to be. One night, Jesus grabbed Peter and James and John and said, hey, I want to show you guys something. And what followed was an event orchestrated by God to show Peter and James and John and us who Jesus really is so that we and they would worship 
and follow him. If you would turn either in your bulletin or in your Bible or on your phone or on the screen to Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 10. This is our passage for today. This is a passage about the transfiguration. Mark, telling Peter's story, says this. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, but they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. Oh Lord, anytime we turn to your word, you reveal amazing things to us. And today as we read about this event, let us imagine in our minds, let us challenge ourselves to open our hearts let us open our ears and open our eyes to your truth that we may have even just a passing glance of what peter and james and john saw speak lord for your servants are listening and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you O lord our rock and our redeemer for it is in the name of your son our precious lord and savior jesus christ and by the power of the holy spirit that we pray Amen. God had a plan for the redemption of his people. He had a plan for the redemption of his creation. And Jesus spelled out that plan to his disciples on three different occasions. He said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. It wasn't what the followers of Jesus expected, and it certainly wasn't what they wanted to hear, but that was the, Jesus, the plan that Jesus laid out to them plain, uh, plainly. But shortly after Jesus had laid out that plan to them, after he told them God's plan, Mark says that one night, Jesus took Peter and James and John up a high mountain by themselves. Now, I don't want us to skip this detail about where this event took place, because to the ancient mind, mountaintops were as close to heaven as a mortal could get. From Mount Olympus in Greek mythology to Mount Zion to Mount Fuji in Japan to Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa to Mount Sinai, mountains are holy places, the kind of place where divinity makes contact with earth. And while they were up on this mountain, at some point during the night, 
something amazing and something terrifying happened. Peter says that Jesus was transfigured before them. The word that Mark used was that he was metamorphosed, that he was transformed. I mean, they saw Jesus. But Matthew, in his version of the story, says that his clothes became radiant. They were so white, they were glowing. His appearance was like lightning. And his clothing as white as snow. And Jesus was not by himself. He was standing there with two others. Peter didn't tell Mark how he knew, but somehow he just knew that these two others were Moses and Elijah. I mean, there was their friend, their teacher, as bright as lightning, standing with the two greatest heroes of Israel's history, Moses, through whom God gave the people of Israel freedom from slavery. Moses, through whom God had worked plague and miracle. Moses, through whom God gave his law and covenant. Moses, through whom the Lord instituted the Passover and saved the firstborn sons of Israel. Moses, through whom God revealed his name. Moses, who brought the people back to the promised land, but who never entered it himself until now. And Elijah, whose name was synonymous with fidelity and courage, through whom God also worked miracles, through whom God spoke, who raised a child from the dead, who stood up to the king and refused to bow his knee to the popular but demonic worship of false gods. Elijah, who suffered persecution and poverty for his faithfulness to God. Elijah, who restored the worship of the living God. Elijah, next to Moses, considered the most of all the prophets. Elijah, who never died and whose return was to be a sign of the coming of the Messiah. To be in the presence of Moses and Elijah was truly an awe-inspiring thing, and yet there was more. Even though they were in the presence of Moses and Elijah, there was a presence whose glory cast a shadow even over all the others. Peter said, that a cloud overshadowed them. This wasn't just some mountain mist or low-lying fog. This is the description of the presence, the physical presence of God's glory. It's called the Shekinah cloud. It was the cloud that led the Israelites by day. And the, power of, and the pillar of fire that led the people by night. It was the train of the Lord's robe that filled the temple in Isaiah's vision. And it was the presence that sat upon the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. The Shekinah was a physical representation of the presence of the Lord himself. And as the cloud covered them, 
as it moved over and around them, Matthew tells us that they felt fear and awestruck wonder. Like Isaiah, like John would experience in the book of Revelation. Peter and others, the others, they just kind of lost it. And Peter recalled all that he could think to say. All he could think to say was, Rabbi, do you want us to set up some tents for you and your friends, for Moses and Elijah? I mean, can you imagine that situation? What would you say? That's all Peter could think to say, but he admitted to Mark that he didn't know what else to say because in his own words, they were terrified. But then, as though all of that was not sufficient to impress them, the voice of the Lord came from the cloud and said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. I mean, there was Jesus standing with the two greatest figures of biblical history. And yet the Lord declared that as awesome as Moses and Elijah are, Jesus does not stand as their equal. He does not stand as their peer. He stands as the Son of God. Yes, he was an exalted company. But God said, this is my Son, and he stands even above them. He said, in the past, you listened to them, but now you listen to him. And then suddenly it was over. Just like that. They were gone. Peter and James and John witnessed something that is beyond our capacity to adequately describe. Later, as they were going down the mountain, overwhelmed and mystified by what they'd seen, the most incredible thing any living human had ever seen, Jesus said, don't tell anyone what you've seen. Don't tell anyone what you've seen here until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. We call this event the transfiguration. What was the purpose of this mountaintop revelation? And why would God orchestrate this incredible, indescribable mountaintop experience only to have Jesus say, don't tell anyone? Well, first, it's clear that everything about this event was designed to impress the disciples and us with who Jesus really is. This is important because throughout the Gospels, especially in Mark, Jesus liked to refer to himself as the Son of Man. Now, on the one hand, as we have noted in the past, that title has exalted, prophetic, messianic meetings. But on the other hand, the title Son of Man is also a title of humility. As Scott's poet Robert Burns once said, for all that and all that, a man's a man for all that. And calling oneself the Son of Man is Jesus' way of saying that for all that and all that, I am a human being. 
But that transfiguration event was also God's way of saying, he may be the son of man, but don't you dare forget that for all that and all that, he is still the son of God. He is my beloved son. And you will not take my son for granted and you will take him seriously. This story is the living vision of Paul's words in Colossians. The apostle wrote, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God summed all of that up when he said, This is my beloved son. And this is what I am giving up for you. This is what your sin and selfishness, this is what your rebellion has cost me. But this is also what I am willing to suffer to prove my love for you and to bring you home. The purpose of the transfiguration was to show us who Jesus really is, his real identity, so that we will never forget what salvation really cost. Because as I said last week, if we don't know what salvation really cost, then we will never understand what salvation is really worth. So why then did Jesus order the disciples not to tell? I mean, can you imagine sitting on a secret like that? But this isn't the first time that Jesus has ordered people not to talk about what they'd seen. When he cast out demons, he commanded the demons not to tell. When he healed a leper, he commanded the leper not to tell. When he healed the blind man of Bethsaida, he, he told him to go straight home without telling anyone, not even to go into town. He said, don't tell anyone. Unfortunately, I think that that's a command that we contemporary Christians take too seriously. But he told them at that time not to tell anyone. All these times, all these spectacular miracles, and those who witnessed them, the eyewitnesses, were not allowed to tell what they'd seen. And now this, his true identity revealed? Why was Jesus keeping his true identity as Messiah a secret? Why couldn't they just tell the world what they'd just seen? Biblical scholars call this the messianic secret. The messianic secret is an academic term scholars use to describe this strange theme in the Gospels, wherein Jesus tells those who witness his power to keep it to themselves, not to tell anyone. But why? 
Why keep this, this knowledge, this, this event, this witness of the Messiah a secret? Why keep it a secret that the Messiah has come? For this reason. Jesus commanded them not to tell because he understood sinful human, human nature. He knew how easily people follow power and beauty and wealth and fame and celebrity. We all follow the bright lights of glory, even to our own destruction, like a moth hovering around a flame. And you know what? If, if, if at any point, if he had wanted to, Jesus could have enthralled or dazzled or intimidated the whole world into following him, even the Romans and even the Pharisees. He could have put on a worldwide transfiguration. And I guarantee you, it would have been quite a show. But that wasn't his purpose. Instead, look at verse 9. Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Jesus didn't want the world to follow him in his victory as the Son of God until they had seen the Son of Man surrender to God. Let me say that again. He didn't want the world to follow him in his victory as the Son of God until they had seen the Son of Man surrender to God. The prophet Isaiah tells us that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. This was how our Savior came to us. And as Isaiah said, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. God sent the Son of Man, not in power and glory, but in humility. Not as a conqueror, but as a servant. Not with success, but with perseverance. These are not the things that we worship and value in our culture. And yet, Jesus came as the embodiment of all these things. But we esteemed him not. Jesus did not exploit his identity. But rather, he humbled himself and went to the cross as a man to encourage us in our darkest moments. He did this because he wants us to know that he understands how much he is asking of us when he tells us, plain, ordinary people, to take up our cross and follow him. As Hebrews says, we have a Savior who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and has been tempted as we are in every way, yet without sin. Jesus wanted us to know that he understands the pain and the fear and the loneliness because he went through it himself. He led the way, and he went through it first. Jesus commanded Peter and James and John not to tell because he didn't want an entourage. 
Jesus doesn't want an entourage. He wants disciples. It's easy to follow someone who we believe will give us the life and the happiness and the satisfaction that we want. But will people follow and be faithful in the face of persecution and shame and humiliation and pain? Beloved, we must proclaim the glory and power of the Son of God. We have to proclaim his glory. But Jesus also wants us to worship the humility, the obedience, and the courage of the Son of Man. To honor compassion and faith and sacrifice over consumption. To value righteousness over popularity. In the transfiguration, God showed us that Jesus is worthy of our worship because he is the son of God who would give his life for man. And then on the cross, God showed us that Jesus is worthy of our worship because he is the son of man who would give his life for God. We must worship the son of God because of who he is. And we must worship the son of man for what he did on the cross. In the book of Revelation, the heavenly hosts proclaim, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The purpose of this season of Lent is to remind ourselves and to remind one another of who he really is. That he is both the Son of God and the Son of Man. He is both the one who sits upon the throne and the Lamb who was slain. And so this story is a call to worship. Intentional purposeful worship throughout these next 40 days minus whatever we've already passed through don't take it for granted make worship a central theme of these 40 days not just on Sundays but all seven days of the week yes we have a Sabbath but we never take the day off from worshiping God worship at home worship at church Worship wherever. Make a point to do it. Worship whenever. Tell yourself, I'm going to listen to music that leads me into worship of God. I'm going to read the scriptures so that I'll be taken into the presence of God. I'm going to make a list of things that I'm thankful for today and thank God for them. And if something wonderful impresses me in a wonderful and powerful way, I'm going to give credit where credit is due and acknowledge the living God. but I am going to worship the Son of God and the Son of Man because He is worthy of our worship. Worship Him for who He is. Not just because He is the Son of God in glory, but because He is also the Son of Man in surrender. You pray with me.
Oh Lord, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy you forever. Lord, we always look for some practical admonition coming from a sermon, for, from our learning together, and there is nothing more direct and more explicit in your word than that we are to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we are to give you glory and worship. Lord, throughout these weeks of Lent, help us to turn our attention and our affection to you so that we will understand what your salvation has cost you. Lord, help us to understand what salvation cost so that we will understand what it is worth. And Lord, for any man or woman or child who is here today who does not yet understand what you have given to prove your love, Lord, just awaken them, open their eyes, transfigure yourself before them so that they might see you for who you really are. We pray all of these things in the name of of our revealed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.